Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Up to 1 in 100 people worldwide will experience schizophrenia. It can stem from a number of factors, including genetics, trauma and substance abuse. For centuries, there's been limited understanding of how schizophrenia operates, leading to misdiagnosis or insufficient treatment. I'm Cassandra Wannan. I'm a PhD student at the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre, so we're part of Melbourne Uni's Department of Psychiatry. In order to better our understanding of schizophrenia, Cassandra Wannan recently authored a paper on schizophrenia and memory impairment. Confirming the role of memory loss in schizophrenia may be a major step towards fully understanding the illness. Andrea Horvath caught up with Cassandra to get the lowdown on her exciting new thesis. Cassie, what is the thesis title? Well, that's a really good question. I haven't come up with a complete title yet, but I'm looking at memory impairment in schizophrenia and how that relates to brain changes that we see in the disorder. So maybe something like neural correlates of memory functioning in people with schizophrenia. Wow, that's a lot of jargon. Let's (laughs) unpack that. You're essentially looking at memory impairment in schizophrenia. That's right. How do you do that? Uh, well, we get people who have schizophrenia and we ask them to do some memory tasks, pretty much. So we uh, we have these computerised tasks that we ask people to do um, and we see how they're performing. And then we very kindly ask them to get in an MRI machine, which most people don't enjoy all that much. It's very claustrophobic. And then we have pictures of their brain. We have a snapshot of how their memory is functioning. And then we try and tie those things together. Cassie, why is it important to understand the brains of people with schizophrenia? Well, we see these, um, you know, symptoms, we see these um, psychotic symptoms, so hallucinations, delusions, and we see these cognitive symptoms, so memory impairments, impairments in executive functioning and planning things, and... These symptoms obviously impact on people's lives, but we need to take a little bit of a step back and understand what's going on in the brain in the hopes that we can treat some of these um, different symptoms. So I think if we don't have a really good understanding of what's happening in the brain, we're maybe missing one of the crucial steps that we might need in order to discover how to help people with the disorder. So sometimes if you find an impairment in a certain brain region, you can then dig down a little bit deeper, um, think about what sort of chemicals you might find in that area of the brain, what uh, neurotransmitters you might find in that area of the brain. And that kind of gives you some clues as to what you might be able to use to treat some of those symptoms. The current treatment of people with schizophrenia is a drug, isn't it? Or a range of drugs? So people with schizophrenia usually are on antipsychotic medications. Are these not enough for treating schizophrenia? Uh, No. So, I mean, in some people they are. That's uh, definitely true. But there's... um, well, first of all, there's a, a significant number of people who don't actually respond to antipsychotic medication. So we call those people um, people with treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Um, and the other um, caveat is that a number of people with schizophrenia, although their psychotic symptoms might be treated, there's a whole range of other symptoms that aren't treated by the antipsychotic medications. So cognition is one of those things that isn't really improved by antipsychotic medication. And another one is negative symptoms. So we often see um, sort of a lack of motivation, um, some sort of depression in people with schizophrenia, and these things aren't really treated by the antipsychotic medication. So there's something else going on there. Tell me more about the memory. 
in people with schizophrenia? Yeah, sure. So people with schizophrenia um, often present with cognitive impairments and these impairments are seen over quite a wide range of cognitive functionings. Uh, But one of the main ones that we do see is memory impairment. Um, And if you think about how often you use your memory every day, obviously you don't even think about the fact that you're using it, but you you need to use your memory to get to work. You need to use your memory to remember what to put on in the morning. Um, And if you weren't able to do this, obviously you would struggle. So there's um, pretty strong links between memory impairment and the ability of people with schizophrenia just to function on a daily basis. And so that's kind of one of the reasons that I was really driven to investigate what was going on with memory impairment in schizophrenia. So how do you explore the memory of people with schizophrenia? Well, we used a computerised battery um, and the one that we use is called the CanTab. Um, And I've been looking at a couple of different memory tasks. None of them are particularly fun to do, (laughs) Um, but we we have our um, people with schizophrenia and we sit them down in front of this computer and we ask them to sort of press these buttons when they see something appear on the screen that they've seen before. And that's how we get a snapshot of how their memory is functioning. Now, you also take pictures of the brain. Yeah, that's right. So we um, we ask our participants to have an MRI scan. And I'm always surprised that everyone's quite willing to jump in the MRI scanner because I myself am quite claustrophobic and I have no inclination to get in there. Me too. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've been really lucky and we have collected a couple of hundred, I think, by now MRI scans from people with schizophrenia and from healthy people. So we could do a little bit of a comparison between the two. So give us a peek preview into the initial results that you've seen of patterns in the brain of people with schizophrenia. Sure. Well, so one thing that I've really been looking at, um, given that I'm looking at memory functioning, is the hippocampus. Um, And so there's quite a few studies now that have looked at this area of the brain in relation to memory functioning in schizophrenia. But I wanted to dig down a little bit deeper um, and look at particular areas of the hippocampus. So this little tiny structure in your brain actually is made up of several Uh, different regions and we call them the subfields of the hippocampus and I wanted to know whether it was just one particular subfield was it all of them what was the relationship between these subfields and memory in people with schizophrenia and what I found was that there was actually two little subfields of the hippocampus that actually seemed to be quite strongly related to memory impairment in schizophrenia so um, for those who were interested the stratum and the dentate gyrus uh, showed that they were two key regions for memory in schizophrenia. Tell me more about the connections in the brain too, because I know you've been looking at those. Yeah, that's right. So this is sort of a little side project and not necessarily related to the cognition work that I've been doing. But um, when I started my PhD, I had this grand plan of looking at um, grey matter in the brain. And so if you don't know what grey matter is, it's sort of the outer surface of the brain. It's the cell bodies, basically. And these cell bodies are all connected to each other throughout the brain by something called white matter. And they sort of form these little highways between different regions of the brain. And people with schizophrenia, they have quite serious loss of grey matter in their brains. And what we see is that as the illness progresses, this loss of grey matter actually gets worse. So people who have only just been diagnosed with schizophrenia tend to have a little bit of grey matter loss. And then as they will progress through the illness, they tend to have more and more loss of grey matter over time. So they're losing some of these pathways between the brain. Well, that was one of the hypotheses. Uh, So that hadn't really been investigated and that was something that I was really interested in finding out. So there is this hypothesis that we see this grey matter loss in brain regions that aren't necessarily right next to each other. So what we wanted to know is, well, what's going on there? If uh, this one region at the very front of the brain and this one region sort of at the side or, you know, towards the back of the brain are losing grey matter, 
is it just random or is it actually a result of um, disruptions to connectivity between those two regions? So we uh, we were lucky enough actually to get three uh, samples of patients to sort of replicate this study on. And what we did is we looked at regions that had lost grey matter and then we just looked at whether they were more strongly connected to each other and that's what we found to be the case. So we, we did have quite strong evidence that grey matter loss was related to brain connectivity. Gosh, that must be exciting to find a clue to memory loss for people with schizophrenia. Yeah, very much so. Um, And I guess... It's really nice because it is quite applicable to a number of different areas. So you might you might look at um, one particular area of functioning and one particular brain region and try and tie those together. But what we're uh, thinking now is that it's not really enough to just look at one region of the brain um, and try and tie that in. So we really need to look at what's happening with all the regions that are connected to your, um, you know, area of interest to see what's going on there. Is there a disruption in connectivity and is that what's causing some of the symptoms that we're seeing? You're like a biological detective <laughs> trying to work out the pathways that, that need a little bit of fixing up. And is that the long-term goal? Yeah, definitely. So at the moment, um, I'm working on a new project that's looking at um, connectivity between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. And I'm hoping that I can tie that into memory impairment in schizophrenia. So I'm really trying to dig down into this sort of memory pathway to see what's going on there. These are very early days as you've just established this pattern in the brain for people with schizophrenia. What are the possible long-term future solutions? What would you like to see if we could sort of herald ourselves into the future? Are there possibly drugs that might be involved? Are there behavioural tasks that they may need to do to use um, neuroplasticity? Or, yeah. or is it the old chestnut of diet and exercise? Well, I mean, diet and exercise... Very important. I think that's often something that's yeah, overlooked. Given. Yeah, it doesn't matter, you know, I guess what illness you have, diet and exercise are always helpful. I just saw it in because it comes up in every interview. Yeah. <laughs> well, a friend of mine and I did come up with this sort of harebrained scheme that we were going to start this exercise program for people with schizophrenia. Given my interest in the hippocampus and research showing that exercise has positive effects on the hippocampus and therefore memory, anyway, that's... I knew it! Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if we drill down a little bit, um, so again, once again, thinking about the hippocampus and some of the neurotransmitters in the hippocampus, um, and there's this one called glutamate, and there's this sort of hypothesis that people with schizophrenia have this abnormality of this particular neurotransmitter. And people are actually developing drugs that sort of target this specific pathway. So if we can really drill down and sort of, you know, to a molecular level or to a neurotransmitter level, we might actually be able to come up with new treatments that will help people. Tell me how you got into this area. What inspired you? Uh, Well, I did a psychology undergraduate um, and I never really had any clinical experience into my fourth year when I started honours. My supervisor was uh, working with people with schizophrenia and I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to go to an inpatient uh, facility and really that was really my first time actually being able to interact with people who had the disorder and it was really eye-opening for me and I never really understood how much not only the psychotic symptoms but the cognitive symptoms really impacted on people's lives and I think that sort of catapulted me into really wanting to look at this further. What misconceptions do people have about schizophrenia? There are a lot. Um, I've met people who definitely have been a bit 
sort of um, cynical of the amount of time that we spend studying schizophrenia. And a lot of it is based on misconceptions um, that people bring it on themselves by taking drugs, for example. And, you know, that's something that kind of frustrates me a little bit as a researcher. Because it's certainly not drug-induced all the time. No, and of course there are, you know, there are cases of drug-induced psychosis, but for most people with schizophrenia, there's a genetic component, there might be some sort of um, environmental component. Uh, I mean, no one really 100% knows what causes schizophrenia. We know that there's genes, we know that there's environment. As a researcher, can you share with us some advice that you've already started to integrate from your elders, let's say, Mm -hmm. about how to be a good researcher? How to be a good expert? Uh, one thing is someone in my lab who I very much look up to pretty much told me to take every opportunity that you can, um, especially opportunities to network with other people. Um, and this is how you really bring about great research collaborations. Uh, and I was lucky enough to meet someone after a talk one day and got talking to them about the work I was doing and the work they were doing. And he said, hey, why don't you come to my lab and we'll teach you what we're doing with the hippocampus. And so I did. And here I am with you know, a published paper, a collaboration with another lab. And I think that sort of thing is really important. Being able to network with other people, make these collaborations is going to make your research so much better. Be open to happenstance. Absolutely. And luck. Yes. Yeah. Well, luck definitely plays into it. But I think you really have to sort of take that first step to, you know, talk to someone. If you're at a conference and you go to a talk and you think, hey, that's really great. That's really applicable to what I'm doing. Go and talk to that person. Everyone loves talking about what they do in research. And that's something I've really discovered. So if you have the opportunity to meet someone that's working on something you're really interested, just go up and say hi, go and talk to them. You're at the pointy end of your PhD, which means you'll be writing up soon. Yes. There'll be the constant old chestnut question, how's the thesis going? Mm -hmm. How are you going to respond to that? Uh, Usually I cry for about eight or nine minutes when someone asks me how's my thesis going and then I sort of pull myself together and I say, yeah, you know what, it's going okay. Um, I think that is the question that literally everyone asks you when you say you're doing a PhD. Oh, how's it going? How far through are you? And I say, you know what, it's not going too bad. I've got two chapters published. I'm working on my final one. So the pieces are slowly coming together, which is really nice. Have you got time to even think about future you? A little bit, yeah. I'm sort of thinking about postdocs at the moment. I did have an offer of a postdoc in Montreal, which is pretty cool, but I also just had a baby, so that's kind of put a little bit of a spanner in the works. So I'm sort of figuring out where I'm going to be going from here. But, yeah, I think a postdoc is definitely what I'll be looking at doing. Next time we encounter people with schizophrenia, what would you like us to think When you see someone with schizophrenia, it's important to think about how far we've come in the last 100 years. So, you know, 100 years ago, people with schizophrenia might have been locked up in an institution. Things were pretty terrible. Yeah, it was not good. No, it wasn't good. Um, And today we have much better treatments. We have a much better understanding of what's going on in the brains of people with schizophrenia. Uh, We also have really great programs that are potentially stopping people from really progressing so far into the illness. So one great thing that's been happening is really early identification of the illness. Um, And once you get in there and start treating people really early, it seems to be that you can either halt them from transitioning to full psychosis, which is obviously a great thing, or you can sort of ameliorate 
ameliorate the effects of the disorder a little bit. So that's a really great achievement, I think. And of course, in the future, their memories will be better. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Which I wouldn't mind if my memory was a bit better. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly working on cognitive remediation for people with schizophrenia. Um, So people uh, are developing programs all the time that help people with, you know, their memory, their planning, things like that. If I come and be your PhD student, can I examine the brains of people with schizophrenia to people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Is that a good project? Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, there's a lot of overlap in some of the research areas, especially with the memory deficits in schizophrenia. Um, And I know I've certainly referred to a lot of the Alzheimer's literature when I've been looking at the hippocampus and memory functioning in schizophrenia. So, yeah, I think that would be a great way forward. Cassie Wannan, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Cassandra Wannan. PhD student at the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on July 23, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.